Before Wilson's smile graced the big screen, there were stories of men lost to battle, the forces of nature with very little but their own wits. Daniel Defoe wrote one of these stories, Robinson Crusoe. Now, Robinson Crusoe uh, certainly wasn't alone with nothing but his wits. He had many things which he found and was able to use. But one of the most intriguing factors of Defoe's book is something that Wilson and his lost companion never really mentioned, Providence. Crusoe believes his purpose on his island, as he came to call it, was superseded by a greater purpose, that Providence had a hand in it all. And yet at the same time, his success on the island was the result of his own labor, him pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, him putting in the work and the effort. Come join us as we talk about this tension in Daniel Defoe's book, Robinson Crusoe. Welcome to Lies Speaking Truth, a podcast at the intersection of faith and fiction. I'm Roy Askins, and with me is Chris Gillespie. How are you doing, Chris? I'm glad to be here. Good. If you have any feedback for our show, please contact us at talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. You can also get a hold of us through the website or through our Facebook page. We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, please do use the links in the uh, on the website if you want to purchase any of the books, because that's one way you can support uh, the podcast here. Uh, do check out our Facebook page. I try to post uh, things of relevance to either previous uh, episodes or things that are coming up. There's quite a bit on there about uh, the Hunger Games and the, the faith themes there. Uh, once again, if it's your first time listening, we have a few ground rules we'd like to set out uh, as we begin. Here at uh, this podcast, we talk about where faith and fiction intersect. We don't interject Christian themes where they don't exist. We do try to find parallels between Christianity and the fiction that we're reading where they do exist, but we're not trying to force a Christian worldview onto everything we're reading. Uh, in fact, very much the opposite. We're trying to understand the worldview that the the author comes from, and or the, the story comes from, and, and think about that worldview. We use two primary sources to analyze a work. We use Vieth's, uh, Gene Edward Vieth's Reading Between the Lines to determine how a work stands up artistically. And we use James W. Sire's The Universe Next Door to think about the worldview of the book or uh, the work of fiction that we're reading. And then finally, there are spoilers here in, in this podcast. If you haven't read the story and you don't want it spoiled, go ahead and read it first and then come back and listen. Anything else I need to cover there? I think that's about it. Yep. All right. Let's begin with uh, a couple of things on the book itself and on Daniel Defoe. Um, do you know when it was first published, Chris? 1719. 1719. It's been through a few editions since then. It's actually one of the most iconic works of, of English literature out there. Um, and it, it's actually really one of the books that gave form to the modern novel. Uh, it, it itself is not a novel. If you read it, uh, it, it does not read like a novel reads. But at the same time, it's one of those a uh, compilation of, of books like uh, Robinson Crusoe that finally give the, the pattern and direction for what we understand as the modern novel. You can tell it's different than a novel in the sense that it's episodic. It tends to go uh, follow various episodes in his life uh, without having like one overarching narrative, really, or one overarching uh, theme. Even though there are themes that go throughout it, it's, it's not one overarching narrative that it's following. Because at the very beginning, it's got him uh, journeying around the world and being uh, you know, captured by uh, the Turks and becoming a slave and whatnot. Uh, even though the majority of it is about his time on the island, that's really not the whole novel itself. And it's really more of a travel journal than anything else. But at the same time, while it gave form to the novel, it's not a novel, so we can't read it as a novel. We have to read it in the character of its time. That is, as a story that's a series of episodes that are kind of are, are 
I would say, more tightly strung together than some of the other novel or uh, stories of the time. And it was received, you know, as <laughs> uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, not quite fiction. <laughs> uh, people weren't sure if it was true or not. Right. Well, and it was based on a story of a Scottish guy that uh, had a similar experience. I was going to say that's partly because of the way he begins, uh, referring to the author as the editor believes the thing to be just history of fact, neither is there any appearance of fiction in it. So it kind of leads you on that uh, <laughs> in that way. So maybe it's the first metaphysical, uh, or not metaphysical, mm-hmm. but um, metafiction, you know, the story about fiction, the mm-hmm. story about the story. Right. Um, before we dive into these, into the, the story, let's, I'm just going to do a brief, brief outline. As Chris mentioned, it begins with a warning from his, uh, or begins with him uh, talking about the editor and the editor being the one who's writing the story. And the editor begins with a warning from his father not to go out and go become a sailor, which he really wants to do. Well, he goes out, becomes a sailor. Uh, he ends up getting, uh, th- in his travels around the world, being caught by uh, some of the Turks and becoming a prisoner, uh, from which he eventually escapes and goes to Brazil and starts a sugar plantation. Uh, and this sugar plantation starts to do rather well, so he and a group of other uh, uh, plantation owners decide to go get some slaves, and en route to get slaves, he gets shipwrecked and spends then close to 26 years on an island uh, for the most part by himself. 28. Is it 28 years? I couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. So 28 years on the island by himself, um, and and the majority of the book is the story about how he survived and lived on the island. And then eventually he gets rescued from the island, and it ends when he goes back to England, sets all of his uh, affairs in order, and then eventually returns back and forth to the island that he came from. Actually settles the island, brings Brazilians over to the island, and and that sort of thing. So that's that's the basic outline of the story. I don't think there's anything major. Uh, so let's usually we begin by talking about uh, the the story as art. Did you have any thoughts on the story as art, Chris? Uh, you know, it's interesting because it it doesn't follow the pattern of the books that we've been reading. Uh, and that's probably because, you know, it predates them. Uh, and it's also, I mean, it's setting the pattern for fiction um, mm-hmm. itself, you know, mm-hmm. being as, as old as it is, English language fiction. So, in that regard, uh, I thought it was interesting that the major uh, plot twist happened almost precisely halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're kind of used to that happening about two-thirds of the way through the book. Uh, it actually helped with the pacing because because it was pretty much plotting through those first uh, twelve <laughs> or thirteen years on, on the island. There wasn't a lot going on. <laughs> Just describing all the planting of the food and <laughs> the whole like yeah. j- daily journal. I was I was really afraid that that was going to go on for quite some time. Well, especially since he had already gone forward and then he went back and read us his journal which covered mm-hmm. events that we had already heard about. <laughs> so it's like, okay, this is repetitive. But, I mean, it did uh, lend a sense of, of realism, uh, because it was first-person narrative, you know, um, that, that, that helped, actually, I think, uh, to the artistry of it. Yeah, and once again, realizing, too, in, in the modern novel, they wouldn't do that sort of thing because it, it interrupts the flow of the story. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, this he once again, he's giving form to the novel, so, you know, he can do that. And, and right. that, there weren't any expectations that, that that was inappropriate or wrong. Yeah. Well, and the same thing with the ending of the book, um, which had, you know, kind of the, the classic form where, you know, everything is, is just slowly winding down rather than just ending at the climax, you know, the final, mm-hmm. you know, 
yep. in a moment where he liquidates his estate and everything is, uh, um, you know, he's just going into the sunset kind of. Well, he doesn't really. <laughs> he kind of he goes back to the island. You know, he, well, he does all the estates. He goes on some trip through France. I mean, it's, what's this yeah. all about? <laughs> it was like reading. The, I really got flashbacks to the end of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, seriously. Uh, let it in <laughs> right uh, yeah so but it, but as art you know that that's okay i think that's just in the in the nature of the, of the, the author yeah the story the, i did think the character development was was very good i mean I, or at least the, i shouldn't say good necessarily but there was a definite character arc where it begins with him mm-hmm. um being self-confident going out on his own ignoring his father doing his own deal and by the end of the the story he's a totally different guy right well and so in that way it could be a you know a coming of age story mm-hmm, certainly um, yeah you know i i thought of prodigal son i mean there's there's going to be plenty of religious parallels i'm sure uh, that you could notice many of them are explicit so you know i i suppose the most explicit is uh job you know that it's mm. he loses everything and then gains everything and back in the end and then even you know uh and with multiplication right some thoughts on worldview when you look at uh, james sire's book on worldview called the universe next door uh the first two worldviews that he talks about are christian theism and deism and really the shift occurred during Crusoe, uh not Crusoe's, daniel defoe's lifetime uh, during the time, about the time that he wrote this book, was the major transition of worldview moving from uh, Christian theism to deism, and you can see uh, Crusoe struggling with this uh, this this struggle between what worldview he's going to to land on. Is he going to be a Christian theist or is he going to be a deist? And uh, we'll define those in just a minute. But that's kind of what we were trying to get at in the intro. That on the one hand, he trusted entirely in this kind of mechanistic providence that that ordered all things and put him in, in, in place where he is. And then on the other hand, he's trusting in himself to pull himself by his own bootstraps and, and, and put him into place and you know do all the, his own work and this, this sort of thing. So that's kind of a part of the tension we're going to discuss here. Um, what does James Sire mean? by Christian theism. And I, I think it's also been called in other contexts uh, a pre-modern worldview. The idea that there is a God out there and he orders the universe for uh, the good of those, as we would say, who are called according to his purposes, that he has created this world and that he continues to interact with this world. And that it's, 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 uh, he actually enters into this world and the very existence of Jesus Christ. And, and that, that this, this God has some relation to those people here, here on earth. Deism is a little bit different in that God becomes distant from his creation. The metaphor they would use is that of a watchmaker, right? Mm-hmm. The watchmaker winds the, creates the watch, builds it, puts it all together winds it up, puts an Everlast battery in it, and walks away from it. And and the clock continues to watch. He never goes back and interacts with it. Of course, the obvious problem with this is there's no watch that lasts forever. The, you know, the, the watchmaker, whoever owns the watch, eventually has to go in and wind it up. But that was not the deist worldview. Deism didn't... Uh, deism believed that God created the world, started it up, got it rolling, and then walked away from it. He didn't interact with it after that. Uh, and, and of course, this has brings up a number of problems. Uh, uh, namely, um, if God never bothers to interact with it again, then it 
has something to say about the human condition, and basically that the human condition really isn't all that bad to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if God never has to come in and fix the problems of, of mankind, then you have to at least say that there really aren't any problems. You know, it does seem that uh, Defoe is having um, that struggle, and he's, and he's trying to work it out through the character uh, of Robinson Crusoe, who at times, you know, is des- master of his own destiny, and at other times, um, especially when life doesn't seem to be going his way, then he has to subject himself, you know, to the higher power <laughs> uh, to get him through. And then, of course, after he does that, then he then he becomes king and he's master again of his of his island and how great he is. He doesn't actually have uh, a pre-modern worldview at all. The main mm-hmm. character doesn't. Uh, he's already divorced himself um, from a theistic worldview because he's he he refers to God by attributes, uh, and only a few times does he does he fall back onto God as you know as identity and by what he does. I, I don't know that I'd go to say he's completely divorced himself from theism, but it's it certainly, I, I would put it more in terms of a transition from theism to deism. But but the, the, the worldview then that we're looking at, if you want to kind of review this in the book, is are those of Christian theism and deism. Mm-hmm. Another one of the concrete areas where deism becomes a problem for him is in uh, talking about or um, understanding the ethics of these pagans that come and, and eat other human beings, you know, cannibal, uh, cannibals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at first, he's absolutely horrified by it. This is disgusting, you know, eating other human beings. But then as he gets to thinking about it, I think it's bad, he says, but it may not necessarily be bad for them. I, you know, I have, I can't, he was thinking about going in and wading in with all his guns and killing all of them, you know, uh, because they were doing this horrible thing. But then he's, he thinks to himself, but they haven't done anything against me. You know, so why? What? What gives me the right to be judge, jury, and executioner of these of these pagans that are doing this horrible thing? And he refuses to make any kind of uh, moral or ethical judgment on these people. In fact, I have uh, toward the end of the book, um, he has this quote. Uh, if you're in the Everyman edition, it's page two hundred three uh, about those on his island and how he treats them. He says, "My island was peopled." And I thought myself very rich in subjects, and it was a merry reflection which I frequently made, how like a king I looked. It was remarkable, too, we had but three subjects, and they were of three different religions. My man Friday was a Protestant, and his father was a pagan and a cannibal, and the Spaniard was a papist. However, I allowed liberty of conscience throughout my dominions, but this is by the way. By the way, okay. So, not making, refusing to make any sort of ethical judgment on this the cannibalistic actions, and that stems directly from from deism. Deism, in essence, rejects original sin. Right? If God wound it up, started up, it must be good. And and when that happens, then if something is at least appears tainted to us. Deism says, well, that's the way it's created. Therefore, whatever it is, it must be the way it is, and we've got to leave it. And so ethics become, in some sense, relative. And I was actually kind of shocked to even see this way back. You know, I, yeah. I didn't know that deism had this kind of aspect to it. When I read the book, I was really surprised to see this, uh, to see him talking in this way and thinking in this way. I, I thought, you know, that was much more a post-Enlightenment, post-modernism sort of uh, view, but definitely not. And not post-modernism, but I mean, like, after modernism right i mean it does prove the point that our what we consider this postmodern context is really uh, modernism taken to its natural conclusion 
Uh, I mean, he, yeah, he says, what authority or call had I to pretend to be judge and executioner upon these men as criminals, Mm -hmm. whom heaven had thought fit for so many ages to suffer unpunished to go on, and to be, as it were, the executioners of his judgments upon one another. Uh, So, in other words, they were actually doing God's will, uh, that they were committing, even though it was... Uh, something that that is would be considered a sin, um, they think it, he says, no more a crime to kill a captive taken in war than we do to kill an ox, uh, nor to eat human flesh than we do to eat mutton. <laughs> and then later on, he, he goes on to say that, uh, while it, you know, he's, he, it gives him cause to pause, uh, he's just going to listen to whatever he hears internally, uh, which he does attribute to, to this providence um, which is kind of almost a deist um, yeah. form of God, but <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I, what I actually found even more interesting uh, is the the philosophy uh, which you hit you hit, uh, hinted at there that was driving it, the religious philosophy, which uh, we would call enthusiasm. Right. I mean, it's it's a strange uh, philosophy that he has running uh, behind. It, it basically. You know, there, it's all this immediate knowledge of God that God dwells in him in a very immediate way. In other words, uh, just comes to him and speaks to him directly, right? Uh, you know, which we would might uh, go with Pentecostalism for this, but but it what it means is it's not only the worldview that he's operating from, but it also is, uh, you know, the radical Protestantism that's yeah. that's driving it too. But there, there's a great quote where he he's talking about he's he's struggling, and then he reads this passage: "God will not forsake you," and, and of course takes that out of context. Yes. <laughs> but but he says right. immediately, you know, this was written directly for me, as though God ordered all of the writing of the New Testament, you know, or the, all the writing of the scriptures, just for one person on this one island, on the anniversary of his uh, being uh, shipwrecked on the island, which yes. is the 30th of September, uh, on the anniversary. Having been there now two years, and no more prospect of being delivered than the first day I came here, I spent the whole day in humble and thankful acknowledgments of the many wonderful mercies which my solitary condition was attended with, and without which it might have been infinitely more miserable. <laughs> okay, so God gave him all sorts of stuff to make it a little bit better. I gave humble and hearty thanks that God uh, had been pleased to discover to me even that it was possible I might be more happy in this solitary condition than I should have been in a liberty of society and in all the pleasures of the world, that he could fully make up to me the deficiencies of my solitary state and the want of human society by his presence and the communica- communications of his grace to my soul, supporting, comforting, and encouraging <laughs> me to depend upon his providence here and hope for his eternal presence hereafter. I mean, it does, be- it does become clear um, that this is part of his uh, youthful uh, immaturity that he that he fails to recognize the need for a society and for neighbor. It also is kind of this hinting, even though the author is Protestant and it seems the character is Protestant too, right? That it's a monastic life, mm. you know, this immediate mona- monastic life where God comes to him. Well, I shouldn't say it's completely immediate. He does come to him through the scriptures. But but um, even then, a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it's directed through nature and through the things he finds in nature, right? right? Right, you know, the, the, God under every rock, and uh, God every time he he suffers, you know. Right. 
Right, right. That 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 the primary means that God comes to him is not through the scriptures because you only see him a couple times actually delving into the scriptures or talking about delving into the scriptures. But he's primarily talking about God when he's experiencing some sort of a boon or some sort of blessing. Yeah, and then when, like you said, when he, when he does quote the scriptures, uh, I think we would agree it's it's faulty exegesis. <laughs> I, I like how he uses Psalm twenty three. Um, you know, which which could be true that it's a, it's about you know this great feast that he had set before him, you know that he sets a table uh, before us in the midst of our enemies, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's actually that he you know he has this feast of animals. Providence tends to be one of those things that that they talked about a lot in deism, but at the same time, even as good Lutherans, we acknowledge that there is there is the idea of providence. Um, how do we, where do we go to put providence in its proper perspective? How do how do we think about providence uh, in an appropriate way? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Chris? Well, I mean, from our confession, we would I think we would attach providence uh, to the first and the second articles of the creed. Uh, the first article. Uh, you know, first article gifts from the father, food, clothing, house, home, wife, children, all those things. But the uh, but also the second article in sending in sending Jesus his son. Uh, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, I, we would confess that without without that promise and its fulfillment in Christ, um, the Father um, wouldn't wouldn't give us anything. Right. You know, but it's for the sake of of Christ that we receive uh, all that we have uh, from the Father. I'm wondering then if uh, if the problem with deism and providence and even uh, some of the various Protestant groups that struggle with understanding providence correctly is when they uh, focus so much on the first article gifts to the exclusion of the second article gifts, mm-hmm. that providence is primarily about God being uh, uh, showering down gifts, you know, that, that providence is primarily about God uh, ordering and directing the events and affairs of the world uh, without so much an emphasis on God ordering and uh, directing the affairs of our salvation. Right. Yeah, they're not, an, they're not a means unto themselves, but they're, they're a means unto salvation, you know, to help um, preserve one's life um, mm-hmm. for the sake of the gospel, that it would be heard mm-hmm. and received, uh, and that you would be saved uh, everlasting life. So, so the fact of the matter is, is that if one is not provided for in the way that they think, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. Which I actually, the, you know, the, the character understood that too. That mm-hmm. he re- he received um, suffering or crosses, if you like, or whatever, um, for the sake of of a uh, call to repentance. So there is that that call to repentance oh, yeah. there too. Yeah. Now I'm thinking of his his view of providence is basically a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. He, he also attaches. Uh, kind of a divine name to nature, which is the deist, the deism part of it, the deism struggle coming up. Yeah. This touched my heart a little, he says, and brought tears out of my eyes, and I began to bless myself that such a prodigy of capital N nature should happen upon my account. And this was mm-hmm. so the more strange to me because I saw near still all alongside the rock some other straggling stalks. This is when he discovers food um, mm-hmm. that he accidentally planted. <laughs> So the struggle really seems to be understanding how God's working through providence, and yet at mm-hmm. the same time how He has to hold Himself up, you know, and do His own work. Right. And 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 this really kind of is an odd struggle because it really seems that the the deist in uh, in the story that the the worldview the deistic worldview 
doesn't have any place for self-made men. Because if you really think about it, if if, if creation is just a set of laws, uh, mechanical laws that God has set up and established and then uh, set rolling, what place is there for man? But the deists were very, very uh, focused on, on individuality and, and men making something of themselves. Right. Uh, and, and maybe that's why, and I think perhaps that's what uh, Sire mentions at the conclusion of the chapter, why deism partly fell was because of this tension between I have to make myself something, and yet at the same time, it's a mechanistic uh, universe and how do I make myself something in a universe that's that's uh, so mechanistic? I think the making making oneself something uh, is actually materialism. Yeah, and, and so the I mean the deists are highly materialistic, and you and you see this in the transition of the book from the beginning, and uh, when he's captured by the Moors, and you you're only he's hinting that there's only now briefly been the introduction of of slave trade, and and then it's only with permission of the king. Uh, but by the end of the book, I mean the slave trade is is, is boomed, and so the, and that slave trade is is highly materialistic. The thing with materialism, though, is materialism doesn't have a place for any sort of divine existence, right? So, so how would that? I mean, he still definitely has a place for God. Uh, before he's stranded on the island, at least the character uh, doesn't True. have doesn't have a place for God at all. Uh, although he he seems to have been introduced to him. Uh, by his parents, even though he forsook it, but but when he when he lands on the island, you know, after first sh- after he's first uh, ashore, and he goes onto the uh, goes onto the back onto the boat to to rummage around in there, he says, "I smile to myself at the sight of the money," because he finds some money in the boat, and he <laughs> says, "Oh, drug," said I aloud, "What art thou good for? Thou art not worth to me. No, not the taking off of the ground. One of those knives is worth all this heap." of money. I have no use of yeah. the uh, for the in remain where thou art and go to the bottom as a creature whose life is not worth saving. Although on second talks thoughts I took it anyway or I took it away wrapping it. And he did keep it and he tried to take it. He took it back with himself uh, uh when he went back to England. Yeah, and another example of this sort of uh where he points us out was page 217 uh there towards the end. Uh, he quotes, It now remained that the captain and I should inquire into one of those circumstances. I began first and told him my whole history, which he heard with an attentive, even to amazement, with attention, even to amazement, and particularly at the wonderful manner of my being furnished with provisions and ammunition. And, indeed, as my story is a whole collection of wonders, it affected him deeply. But when he reflected from thence upon himself, and how I seemed to have been preserved there on purpose to save his life, the tears ran down his face, and he could not speak a word. More. That is to say that Robinson Crusoe and the captain who eventually rescues him come to the conclusion that the entirety of the 28 years that Crusoe spends on the island is for the purpose of rescuing this captain, saving this captain. Uh, and that whole thing was orchestrated by uh, some sort of divine existence. And I, and I think Crusoe would, would say that it was God, Christ Jesus, because he mentions Christ and his faith in Christ. Um, but... Uh, but once again, there that's that's you know the the difference between all the you know the, the way he sees nature as existing for his use, for him to 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 make use of, for him to to farm and and to make something of himself with, and then providence, which orders all things, you know. So 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 which is really doing the work? Is it providence or is it you know him, uh, you know, putting forth his effort? I think by the end he he truly does recognize, um, you know, that this is a, an outside orchestration. You know mm-hmm. that he's being provided for. Um, he says that I 
I don't know what page this is on for your edition, but uh, uh, I had more care upon my head now than I had in my silent state of life in the island. This is when he's back in England, mm-hmm. where I wanted nothing but what I had and had nothing but what I wanted. You know, so he was provided for, uh, and he, and he was uh, content. And now he's he's got five thousand uh, pounds sterling in money <laughs> and an estate in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's got all these affairs to deal with, and he doesn't, you know, he's lost the simple life, if you like. Well, and and part of it, I think, too, is, um, and maybe this is a segue into the next theme. I don't know if you want to go this way yet, but go for it. Delving into the theology of the cross, too. I mean, he had learned to embrace the fact that the suffering he was un- uh, undergoing was for the purpose, uh, was for God's purposes. Uh, Chris, do you want to give a brief definition of the theology of the cross versus the theology of the glory? Well, before I uh, read this this passage. Well, I mean, there's a number of ways you could talk about it. I, I actually uh, was going to use uh, Byer's way of describing uh, cross versus glory, which is the hidden God and the revealed God. The God that that we approach in the cross is the one who's revealed to us. Uh, so, if you want to know uh, that God loves you, you approach him uh, through Jesus and what he did for you there at the cross. That's the mm-hmm. revealed God. Uh, the hidden right. God is the God in his majesty and his glory. Um, not the glory of the cross, but the you know, say the glory of creation, or the um, or in his um, in his uh, veiled glory, uh, the glory that uh, is seen in the in the temple visions, or excuse me, the the heavenly visions of say Isaiah six or, or Ezekiel, where where they're, I mean they're even unfathomable. You can't even understand them. Not only can you not understanding understand them, but they're, they they ought to terrify you as they do. Uh, you know, everybody's that, that, that's in the presence of them, they fall on their faces for fear uh, of death. Uh, because when you stand before God, um, who, not the revealed God in Jesus, but, but you know, God completely unveiled, uh, you better darn well be sure uh, that you're sinless. <laughs> Otherwise, um, you know, his holiness is, is, uh, has no choice but to, but to strike you down. Uh, so we right. don't we don't approach uh, even the Father apart f- uh, from Christ, and so you don't want to talk about um, God as He has not revealed Himself. You know, wondering about um, which this is the Protestant dilemma. You know, talking about God and all His many attributes, uh, you end up with the same God that they have in Islam, right. uh, which who is you know Almighty, powerful. I don't know all the Islamic names. You know, and I was going to talk about how in the theology of the cross, he learned to embrace the fact that this suffering is for his benefit and for his good. Uh, but right. the problem with that is the way that Oswald, Oswald Bayer defines it is the exact opposite. He actually approaches God primarily in 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 hidden form, you know, through nature, through, uh, you know, uh, rather than where he has revealed himself in Christ and in the scriptures. So, but I, I was, so I was going to take a little bit different note, but I was going to read from... Uh, page 95, uh, a, a brief little quote here he has, talking about uh, coming to grips with the fact that he's here on this island and, and what the result of that was. He says, From this moment I began to conclude in my mind that it was possible for me to be more happy in this forsaken, solitary condition than it was probable I should ever have been in my other particular state in the world. And with this thought I was going to give thanks to God for bringing me to this place. I know not what it was, but something shocked my mind at that thought, and I durst not speak the words. How canst thou be such a hypocrite, said I, even audibly, to pretend to be thankful for a condition which, however thou mayest endeavor to be contended with, thou wouldst rather pray thy heart to be delivered from. So I stopped there, 
But though I could not say I thanked God for being there, yet I sincerely gave thanks to God for opening my eyes, by whatever afflicting providences, to see the former condition of my life, and to mourn for my wickedness and repent. I never opened the Bible or shut it, but my very soul within me blessed God for directing my friend in England, without any order of mine, to pack it up among my goods, and for assisting me afterwards to save it out of the wreck of the ship. Once again, the point that I was going to make there is he comes to the realization that these afflicting providences, that the afflictions he's enduring, the fact that he's here on this island, the fact that he's been shipwrecked, the fact that he's you know confronting these cannibals, whatever it might be, that these are actually the work of providence, who he has you know termed to be God. So God is himself the one that's putting these burdens and these sufferings upon him, and that it has the, the benefit of making him better. You know, this is in direct contrast to uh, various churches that practice a theology of glory where you go to church, you become a Christian, and then God will bless you with health, wealth, and, and wisdom or whatever the however it goes. When in fact the promise of, uh, of the Christian is exact, or promise from God is the exact opposite, that as you become a Christian, you actually will endure more suffering and more pain as a result of, uh, result of that. And, right. uh, you know, even, even going back a little bit further, uh, he, he's struggling uh, with you know what i mean really what's the point if if the world hates me you know in a sense you know if mm-hmm. i if i have a, a rough life uh what is that does that does that say that god has forsaken me no he has promised not to to never never leave thee nor forsake thee those words were for him mm-hmm. uh so you know the promise that god is with him and there he's with him through the word so i guess he's as protestant as you can get uh i mean i'm just thinking here this man hasn't gone to church, and he does notice that he that he uh, hasn't been keeping the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has like an annual Sabbath on the anniversary of his shipwreck, uh, and then I I think he does start to to keep the Sabbath or to mark the day somehow. He he does mark the day and actually keeps the Sabbath as well. Yeah, and so, so. that that's part. I mean that it is the scriptures. Um, yeah, I never open the Bible or shut it. But my very soul within me, bless God for directing my friend in England. Yeah, I mean, uh, he does eventually open the Bible. I mean, he, uh, within the twenty-eight years that he's there, the first uh, you know few years until he gets really, really sick. You remember when he gets really, really sick, and then he's mm-hmm. sick, and then he prays. If you have the Everyman edition, it's page seventy-eight, seventy-nine. He talks about praying for the first time after he gets very, very ill and extremely sick. And I believe after that, he begins to open the scriptures more and to read the scriptures after, well, it must be after page 95. I don't know, somewhere in there. He be, he does begin to read the scriptures on a daily basis, it does say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he began to read the Bible more. Um, yeah, and after the earthquake, uh, which had <laughs> three, three shocks, um, he says, All this while I had not the least serious uh, religious thought, nothing but the common Lord have mercy upon me. And when it was over, that went away too. <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty early, but he, he's, it's starting to come upon him that, you know, he's suffering right. these things as a, um, uh, you know, as cross-bearing, that, that he's learning um, how to place his trust into God, into God. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned it's a coming-of-age story in some sense, mm-hmm. and a coming-to-faith story, too, through, you know, through the exact opposite of, of you know, when you listen to, to a lot of these, like, testimonials, you know about 
somebody coming to the faith because they became a Christian and they received all sorts of good things. You know, they don't tend to think of people don't always realize the opposite side of that. That coming right. to the faith often comes uh, th- more than likely. Actually, the experience I've had as a pastor here for two years is that it's not when people receive lots of things that they come to the faith, but the exact opposite. It's rather um, a- as a result of losing things. More than likely. Well, and maybe the thing that they lose is is their independence. You know, they come to, <laughs> well, I mean, you could say it a number of different ways. They become to be dependent upon um, right. God as their father, or uh, they become dependent upon their parents again. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that where, you know, uh, joblessness or whatever, uh, now they they have uh, need to return to their parents' home, you know, and, and consequently... Uh, to what va- what their parents value, so his coming of age, uh, Robinson's coming of age, actually is returning uh, to the faith of his father. I was going to quote page one ten. I had another reflection which assisted me. He writes also to comfort my mind with hopes, and this was comparing my present condition with what I had observed, and had therefore reason to expect from the hand of providence. I had lived a dreadful life, perfectly destitute of the knowledge and fear of God. I had been well instructed by my father and mother. Neither had they been wanting to me, in their early endeavors, to infuse a religious awe of God into my mind, a sense of my duty, and of what the nature and the end of my being required of me. And that's, that's what he talks about the faith of his father being, you know, that, that this idea of, of uh, once again, this is, gets back to deism, but a religious awe, a sense of duty, and of what nature and the end of his being required. Yeah. <laughs> This is so foreign, you know, to to our way of thinking today. Well, but at the same time, that's about all you know. Religion, you know, does for us anymore, right? I well, mean, well, okay, yeah. I should say this is very foreign to a Lutheran to a Lutheran way of talking, about right? God. In a, in another place, this is uh, when he's uh, has sick with the fever. Uh, he says, "I had, alas, no divine knowledge. What I had received by the good instruction of my father was then worn out by an uninterrupted series for eight years of seafaring wickedness. So this is the <laughs> prodigal son stuff, and a mm-hmm. constant conversation with nothing but such as were like myself, wicked and profane to the last degree. I do not remember that I had in all that time one thought that so much as tended either to looking upwards towards God or inwards towards a reflection upon my own ways." So that's quorum Deo, and then quorum mm-hmm. whatever uh, the Latin is for omnibus, or omnibus right? Uh, but a certain stupidity of soul, without desire of good or conscience of evil, had entirely overwhelmed me. And I was all that the most hardened, unthinking, wicked creature among our common sailors can supposed to be, not having the least sense either of the fear of God in danger or of thankfulness to God in deliverances. That's a reflection uh, on the understanding of God as the giver of law and of gospel, or at least of gifts, deliverances. What else was in there? Oh, it's desire of good or conscience of evil. Yeah, when you were talking about the ethics, he didn't, um, he doesn't really ha- seem to have a conception of concupiscence or original sin. Uh, at no, least not, not. not the classical sense, uh, mm-hmm. that, that it's really about, you know, kind of the inner workings of, of his own uh, ethic, that you know that that he judges things, but natural law doesn't really seem to exist for him. He's got a natural law, but but it's it's flexible, right? So a different culture might have a different natural law, and that oh, these, these hints are given. To, he, he calls them secret hints or pressings of his mind. 
that are given to him are the secret uh, intimations of the providence to let him come apart come, come about with this you know invisible knowledge of the will mm-hmm. <laughs> secret communications um, he calls them too yeah and he didn't he mention he never ignored them that when he had this like when he had one of those things pressing on his mind he always obeyed it or something to that effect he wants to talk about original sin uh when he f- when he first uh right before he has opportunity to rescue Friday. Uh, he's talking about uh, his relationship to God. And he says, I mean that of not being satisfied with the station wherein God and nature hath placed them, uh, for not to look back upon my primitive condition and the most excellent advice of my father, the opposition to which, as I may call it, my original sin, my subsequent mistakes of the same kind, has been the means of my coming into this miserable condition. So for him, original, I mean, what he calls his original sin is that he didn't listen to his dad. So his original sin is not really an original sin, it's an actual sin. Exactly. But may, maybe, I mean, is he using it as the term original sin, or is he using it as the sin of origin that just begins his... At least, at least maybe it seems to point out an underlying issue here that that he, what he sees as the, the direct result is, is certainly the disobedience to his father, but he doesn't seem to realize that there's an underlying cause of his disobedience to his father either. Maybe that's the point you're making. He, he's struggling with this idea that God would, would judge uh, wickedness. You know? He could execute this, this judgment. So, I mean, it's a hint of, of what we know now of, you know, no one is guilty even those who are proven guilty, that everyone should have a second chance. And this is when he's trying to instruct Friday. Later on, he'll try to instruct Friday about uh, uh, what is right and what is wrong. You know, and as mm-hmm. re- regards to cannibalism, he realizes, again, that uh, who is he to say to the cannibal that he shouldn't be a cannibal? And there's right. that struggle already. I wanted to make some comments on, on repentance, actually, uh, and his coming, his relationship mm-hmm. with God. Um, <laughs> and and uh, what his repentance consisted of. You see my quote there from page 111? I had a terrible reflection upon my mind for many months, as I had al- have already observed, on account of my wicked and hardened life past. And when I looked about me and considered what particular providences has attended, my, uh, attended me since my coming into this place, and how God had dealt bountifully with me, had not only... Uh, punished my, me less than my iniquity had deserved, but had so plentifully provided for me. This gave me great hopes that my repentance was accepted, and that God had yet mercy in store for me. Once again, there, there's a couple things that that we have issues with here. Uh, first off, that he's relying on what God is doing and how God is blessing him here in this mm-hmm. life as a sign of God's uh, favor in terms of salvation. And this is just, once again, not true. Uh, you know, he's concerned for his sin, and what he doesn't place his comfort in is, uh, he doesn't place his comfort in Christ and Christ's atoning work and the promise God makes in the scriptures and the promise God makes in the in the sacraments to deliver that forgiveness, uh, but rather he places his confidence in the fact that God is blessing him with things here on this earth, with food, whatever, etc., and so forth. Uh, the other concern is that, that, uh, his, that it is his repentance that is the cause of God's uh, grace, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That my repentance was accepted and that God yet had mercy in store for me. That it was his turning from sin, uh, his own actions uh, in turning from sin, that uh, 
that that brought about God's God's mercy, and yet once again, as Saint Paul says, "As for you, you are dead in transgressions and sins." You know, dead people can't turn from their sins; it requires the hand and working out of of God to do that. So, uh, once again, we, got, we as Lutherans, we would have issues with the way he understands his repentance and uh, and God's favor as a result of that repentance. Right, right. Now said I aloud, my father's, my dear father's words are to come to pass. God's justice has overtaken me, and I have none to help or hear me. I rejected the voice of providence, which had mercifully put me in a posture or station of life. Uh, there is that whole theme of rejection of vocation, actually, that comes up a couple times. Uh, wherein I might have been happy and easy, but I would neither see it myself or learn to know the, the blessing of it from my parents. I left them to mourn over my folly and now I am left to mourn under the consequences of it. I refused their help and assistance, who would have lifted me into the world and would have made everything easy uh, to me. And now I have difficulties to struggle with, too great for even nature itself to support. And no assistance, no help, no comfort, no advice. Then I cried out, Lord, be my help, for I am in great distress. This is my first prayer uh, that I had made in many years. Now, I mean, there again... uh, well, I mean, what's the goal of repentance in this first prayer? And it was the same in the quote that you read. The goal of repentance is a life that that is happy and easy, uh, where where one is satisfied with their station in life. Um, now, that is certainly a blessing that God grants to those who trust in his word, no doubt. Uh, but that's not the point of repentance. <laughs> I mean, we right. should be content with what God has given us. Uh, and if we aren't content, we repent and trust in the mercy of Christ. So, I mean, the kind of the order of operations is a bit strange there. Right. Um, but maybe that's part of, I, I mean, I want to give the author a little bit more credit. I think that might be part of, you know, the, the faith the development. Well, and the zeitgeist, but also the faith development of the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he, he's building... Uh, towards really a a, 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 com- a complete utter despair and terror of conscience, you know, mm-hmm. which comes later. Um, and he, I mean, he keeps mentioning the conscience, which is helpful because we don't have that uh, conscience um, perspective like we used to have. I mean, during those fevers, it ultimately the before the final fever, he, he just says in his mind, "Why has God done this to me? What have I done to be thus used?" Right. You know that. That that's the the uh, uh, what do we call that in Latin? The theologian's cross. Oh, the crux yeah. teologorum. Yeah. Uh, why are some saved and not others? Why is why do we suffer this way? Even right. for those who believe, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think that I think if the, if there is you know a weakness in the presentation here, especially in its parallel to to Job, you know the the biblical character. Job knows why he's suffering. But see, you could even say that Robinson Crusoe does too, right? Because doesn't he come to the conclusion that I'm here for the for a purpose? But the, the difference is that maybe Job realizes that his suffering is his sin. And, like, not his personal sin, but, like, sin. And Robinson Crusoe doesn't see his suffering as sin, but sees it merely as God, like the puppet master, pulling the strings in order to orchestrate the history of the world. And this just happened to be necessary for him to suffer in order to save, you know, in order to work things out. But, but I mean, the point is, is that, you know, he takes up the Bible then, and he reads, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver, and thou shalt glorify me. 
So, I mean, he does, it does draw him to the scriptures and, uh, you know, and he's looking for hope, um, you know, in this really kind of horrible situation. No, I, I think you're right. I, I, you know, maybe we're being overly negative here. I thought the story, you know, actually, I really enjoyed the story and I really even enjoyed, you know, you know how when you read modern Christian fiction, it's like the author's trying to beat you over the head with his Christianity. Uh, and it's actually refreshing to read a Christian author who can talk about Christianity without doing that. And I think I think Defoe does this right because there was, you know he was writing to a largely Christian audience at the time, mm-hmm. and so he can write it without having to like you know it, it seems like every you know you go to the Christian bookstore you get these Christian fiction books, and their goal is to like bring everybody that reads the book to conversion and to you know come to the <laughs> altar call sort of thing, you yeah. know yeah and <laughs> like eat. Each one is attempting to convince you of the truth of Christianity, and that just wasn't his concern. He is a Christian author writing with a Christian uh, character, a, a story about somebody who comes into a crisis of existence, and how he worked this out in terms of, of the faith that he had. And it wasn't right. a, a a story intended to you know convert you to Christianity in any way necessarily. And I I don't know. I thought it was very refreshing to read that kind of a. That kind of a story. And again, you know, to, to emphasize the point, um, while it isn't as strongly presented, the cross of Christ isn't as strongly presented as we would like, mm-hmm. uh, finally, when he, when he makes it out all the fevers and he's just feeling a little bit better, he says, you know, he took up the Bible, he began to more seriously read the New Testament. Oh, when he started with the New Testament, he actually goes to the New Testament, which he had only been quoting from the Old Testament before. Uh, and he read it every morning and every night, not tying myself to the number of chapters, but as long as my thoughts should engage me. So he just read as long as he could. It was not mm-hmm. long after I set seriously to this work, but I found my heart more deeply and sincerely affected with the wickedness of my past life. All right, so this is real repentance now. The impression mm-hmm. of my dream revived in the words, all these things have not brought thee to repentance. Oh yeah, it was some wicked judge coming down in the dream, right? Like dressed mm-hmm. in black, and there was a mm-hmm. he had a sword. Uh, anyway, uh, ran seriously in my thoughts. I was earnestly begging of God to give me repentance. When it happened providentially, the very day that reading the scripture, I came to these words: "He has exalted a prince and a savior to give repentance and to give remission." Mm-hmm. <laughs> the point. He threw down the book. I threw down the book, and my with my heart as well as with my hands, I lifted up to heaven in a kind of ecstasy of joy. Okay, so that's enthusiastic a little bit, but anyway, I cried out aloud, Jesus, thou son of David, Jesus, thou exalted prince and savior, give me repentance. But is that the cross yet? Uh, Not quite. But see, it's an acknowledgement of where repentance comes from. True repentance doesn't come from the law. That's the point. Right. If it comes, if, if repentance is the law, it's you're, okay, so for fear of judgment, uh, you say, I, oh, be merciful on me. You're, you're not going to ever be delivered from your, the terror of your conscience. Because unless, unless it's, uh, you know, Lord have mercy upon me, and you're thinking Christ, the one who died for me. Well, yeah, I mean, this is uh, repentance in narrow versus broad sense, right? Yep. You have narrow yep. sense repentance, which is just the terrors of the law. And then you have broad sense repentance, which is... The terrors of the law, and then uh, you know, absolved in, in in the gospel, the actual turning from sin—that's the result of of the forgiveness one in Christ. Right. But but regardless, whether it's uh, you know narrow sense or broad sense, repentance is always the work of God. Whether it's through the law or the law and the gospel, uh, it's always the work of God doing it, rather than him his own generated repentance. But incidentally, I mean, uh, in uh, Robinson's 
you know, Christian education of Friday, uh, which is, of course, the author's intent, too, he acknowledges that uh, the evangelical um, uh, prospect of, of this book and even of, you know, of his talking to Friday uh, is nothing apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing but mm-hmm. divine revelation can form the knowledge of Jesus Christ and of the redemption mm-hmm. purchased for us, of a mediator mm-hmm. of the new covenant and of an intercessor at the footstool of God's throne. I say nothing, but a revelation from heaven can form these in the soul. And that therefore the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I mean the word of God and the spirit of God, promised for the guide and sanctifier of his people, are the absolutely necessary instructors of the souls of men in the saving knowledge of God and the means of salvation. See, Robinson Crusoe was a Christian after all. He was a Christian after all, but that's at the end. You know, <laughs> this is when he's, he's finally... Uh, And he even acknowledges that these words are given to him. He doesn't really Mm -hmm. even, you know, Mm -hmm. when when he came again to me, I entered into long discourse with him again on the subject of the redemption of man as this uh, by the Savior of the world. Uh, But but where these came for this knowledge, uh, poor man's instruction, he calls it. Came came you know, and this is where like some of the things that appear to be deistic or or to appear to be deism in his writings may not necessarily be real deism but it's it's once again the the thought pattern of the age this is how they thought about things and so once again this is where the struggle comes from and how why we see this struggle in robinson crusoe it's not that defoe or crusoe were deists uh, but it's just the the way they thought about the world the way they saw the world the way the way they interacted with the world mm-hmm. and and so you know that, that's what he's actually struggling with yep so as we struggle with uh, modern fiction um, it's good to go back and look at the classic fiction as well, where, where mm-hmm. they have, they're having the same struggle, is the point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You exactly. know, revelation exactly. versus uh, uh, natural knowledge um, is mm-hmm. going to be a struggle that we all have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess, I guess that's, I mean, if there is a weakness, that's probably it. It does seem like um, Robinson is having to uh, cooperate significantly, you know, with, with his redemption, with his salvation. Not... Mm-hmm. Not in a sense that God didn't do it, but in a sense that you know that it's a, that He has the will to choose uh, to receive it, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. we don't confess. You know, he's right. the, He certainly had the will to reject it, which He acknowledges that He did reject mm-hmm. it. But but here, you know, I began to construe the words mentioned above. Call upon me, and I will deliver you. In a different sense from what I had ever done before, for then I had no notion of anything being called deliverance, but my being delivered from the captivity I was in. You know, or the or whatever is bothering him on the island. Mm-hmm. For though I was indeed at large in the place, yet the island was certainly a prison to me, and that in the worst sense in the world. But now I learned to take it in another sense, that those words call upon me and I will deliver you. Now I looked back upon my past life with such horror, and my sins appeared so dreadful that my soul sought nothing of God but deliverance from the load of guilt that bore down all my comfort. As for my solitary life, it was nothing. I did not so much as pray to be delivered from it or think of it. It was all of no consideration in comparison to this. Mm-hmm. And I added this part here to hint to whoever shall read it. <laughs> okay, so this is author note. That whenever they come to a true sense of things, they will find deliverance from sin a much greater blessing than deliverance from affliction. Yes. So that's the author's yes. note put into the, into the voice of the, of the main character. Uh, which, like I said, I want to give him more credit. I think that 
that's probably his real confession. And he's presenting Robinson as as coming to that, um, you know, through through the story of the novel, Uh, which which is you know uh, our lives are a journey from death unto life. You know, we probably all have our prodigal or or Job like uh, times in our life. If we haven't already, you will. (laughs) uh, Where where you're you're brought through some pretty serious stuff. You know, we spend the majority of our time talking about the actual more uh, abstract themes of the book. What did you think of just the the uh, the story itself in terms of, you know, what he goes and does, you know, living on the island, actually building himself his two separate forts? And I, I really got a kick out of <laughs> making the, the massive uh, canoe out of the big tree. How it was so large he couldn't him? move it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I noted that, you know. <laughs> I thought, oh, been there done that. <laughs> you know, it, it uh, you know, the story of the the guy who goes out to build a building, you know, will he not first count the cost? Uh, and and I think he even mentions that in there, you know. Right. Counting the cost and and uh, how he goes and he cuts down this massive tree and and it's it wasn't just a canoe but it was kind of like an outrigger of some sort like a, a large boat and he and so he cut down this tree and he hollowed it out and spent what three months working on this uh, to do it and then uh, when he got done uh, he couldn't move it he realized after he got it finished that he wasn't able to move the darn thing and it just sat there and rotted oh man. Yeah, and, and you know, I got a kick out of him him describing how he comes to figure this stuff out. If you have the Everman edition, page 56, he talks about, like, how he's learning how to work on the island. Uh, you know, how to cut down the tree and how to use the tools he has. And he says, so I went to work, and here I must needs observe that as reason is the substance and origin uh, of all mathematics, so by stating and squaring everything by reason, and by making the most rational judgment of things, every man may be in time master of every mechanic art. And I have to say, um, this is me interjecting real quick, that that's uh, definitely false. <laughs> right. Uh, but I thought it was interesting, the, the, the idea. I never handled, he continues, a tool in my life, and yet in time, by labor, application, and contrivance, I found at last that I wanted nothing, but I could have it made, especially if I had had tools. However, I made abundance of things, even without tools, and some with no more tools than an adze and a hatchet, which perhaps were never made that way before, and that with infinite labor. You know, one of the things I wanted to actually begin talking about, and I didn't really talk about, but was, you know, Lewis's exhortation that for every modern book you read, uh, you should read an ancient book <laughs> uh, between every modern book. And, and he talks especially in terms of theology, because what this does is it puts you, or it gives you a perspective outside of, of your own. Even if you there's somebody you disagree with, you know, 100%, you still have certain basic assumptions uh, that you're coming from that somebody from a different era won't have. And so one of the nice things about reading Robinson Crusoe is to get this other perspective you know, this other view that we, you know, we don't cer- certainly don't share uh, in the 21st century. So uh, if you want to read that, it was an intro to Athanasius's On the Incarnation that C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis wrote. Very good. Um, but so next uh, is actually our modern book. It will be Stephen R. Lawhead's The Skin Map. Uh, there's a link in the website. Uh, do use that link if you'd like to, to purchase it. I think I might actually buy the Kindle edition next time. Stephen Lawhead's next. Uh, please do send us feedback on this episode if there's anything we can do to improve it. Do leave your comments on the website or uh, send us an email. And if we can, we'll read your feedback uh, on, on an episode. All right. Till next time. Until next time.